Today on the show, we are going to talk about living through a devastating event. Loss can come in many forms. It can be a beloved career, a pet, the unfathomable loss of a child or perhaps a marriage or a life partner. The grief and trauma that can follow such life events can be daunting and sometimes awful things happen to us and we somehow gather up the courage to handle whatever hurdle that life has placed in front of us. Our guest today has done just that and she now shares with thousands of other widowed people her innovative grief support program. And through this process, anyone who's experienced life-altering trauma will discover a map for grieving what they've lost, identifying what they've gained, and learning to embrace the person they've become. Health, wellness, career, relationships, and everything in between. We're removing the taboo from what really matters in midlife. I'm your host, Michelle Folan, and this is Asking for a Friend. Welcome to the show, everyone. It was actually before I launched the podcast that I knew I wanted to have this next guest on the show. Our guest today is a champion for widowed people and those dealing with loss. Michelle Neff Hernandez is a content expert and speaker in the areas of resilience, bereavement, adapting to life challenges, nonprofit leadership, and women's issues. She is the creator and director of the Innovative Camp Widow Program. She has won numerous national and local awards for her work with grieving populations and was named a 2021 CNN Hero. Michelle is also the CEO of Soaring Spirits International and the Executive Director of Soaring Spirits Canada. She also acts as the Director of the Soaring Spirits Resilience Center located in Kerrville, Texas, whose mission is to research resilience and create practical tools for building resilience in the bereaved. Welcome to the show, Michelle Neff Hernandez. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. I do want to say how I came upon your book, because I think it's kind of a neat thing how these things happen. And I believe her name is Gina Vinnie Kelly. Oh, Gina Verzi Kelly. Okay, is that what it is? Yeah. I had to read her handwriting. Uh, Yeah. That was how it was spelled in the note to my husband. He had donated some things for maybe an auction for Soaring Spirits through his business, she provided him a copy of the book and he brought it home and he said, you may want to think about this person as a guest on your podcast. I binged, read your book, loved it. And I was like, okay, as soon as I get this thing up and running, I'm going to reach out to you. And it took us a while to connect, but you're here today. What's amazing about that is that Gina came to us long before she was widowed herself and had been working on the Share the Road ride, which must be what your husband donated for. So thank you very much to him. In the midst of having supported the organization for many years, then her husband died. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's how she came to know more personally the work of Soaring Spirits, having supported it for many years prior. 
I can't wait to tell her that we've connected because she will be delighted by that. She's the kind of person who shares what she loves. I'm honored that she was able to pass it along. And here we are. Wow, that is quite the story. Again, it's just so tremendous how we can make these connections through wonderful organizations like your own. And we'll talk more about that here too. I would like to just kick off the show a little bit about you, where you're from, and just your family details. Well, I live in Simi Valley, California, not too far from Gina, as it turns out. I have been here for almost 30 years. Grew up in Southern California. I have three adult kids, and I am married to an Australian who was living in Australia when we met. We've been married for almost 15, well, we've been married for 13 years together for 15 That is a little bit about life for me right now. I love living in Simi Valley. I'm a Southern California girl through and through. I've traveled all over the world. And every time I come home to California, I feel like, yep, still the right choice for me. Yeah, you do that. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. (laughs) I know how that is. Like when I drive home from the airport, I feel the same way. Yes. I would love for you to share your story. I feel that that's probably the best place to start about losing Phil, how that all happened, and then your journey after that. Well, it was a regular summer day, and my husband of five years, who was one of the healthiest and strongest people I know, went out for his afternoon bike ride and was unfortunately hit by a car. I was called to the scene thinking that he was probably broken his legs or all I kept thinking was he's going to be so mad that he can't run tomorrow. It never occurred to me to think that it could be worse than that. I was able to ride with him in the ambulance. When we arrived, his heart had already stopped. He was 39, two months away from his 40th birthday. That same day on the day he died, I had just signed the contract on a location for his 40th birthday party. When we stopped in the ambulance bay, I just remember when they were speaking to me about his condition, realizing like, wait a minute, this could go totally differently than I anticipated. And then just a few minutes later, it did. He was a local track coach. He was a dad to his three kids. So we had a blended family of six. Upon his death, I have six kids that are suddenly grieving I had no idea what to do with myself or what to do with or for them. At that time, there was no one in my life who was widowed that I could connect with. And I just kept thinking, how do you do this? Are there other people who are widowed? I remember so distinctly wishing that people could wear a W on their forehead if they were widowed. (laughs) Sorry to all the widowed people out there. I know you don't want to do that, but I wanted to find them so badly. I started that search for other widowed people because I had gone to a local support group and I looked in the window and I didn't see anybody that looked like me. By that, I mean, everybody was significantly older. What I know now is that I likely would have found some comfort there. But at the time it felt like, wow, how are they going to be able to respond to me when I've got these six kids and I could probably be many of their children, child. I didn't feel like that was the place that was speaking to me. That led me to start thinking, well, where would I find widowed people? I sort of went on a little quest to find them. In that quest, I traveled the country on weekends in between personal training clients. I was a personal trainer at the time. I connected with 30 widowed people. And each time I did, I felt this sense of hope that would just 
not available to me anywhere else because no one else had done it. I always tell people, I think it's an irony that I would be the one who would start an organization for peer support because I was so well supported. I have an incredible family. I had incredible friends. The thing that was lacking was that none of them were widowed and none of them had a grief experience like this to be able to share or to understand what I was going through or even to give me suggestions. We all kept thinking, I don't know. These meetings that I had with these other widows were really meaningful. At the time, I only interviewed women. So I did only interview widows. Since that time, our community has always included every person who's experienced the death of a spouse or partner. But at the time, I only had access to women. So I did these interviews. And at the end of it all, I kept thinking, what if I could just gather them all in one place? All of these people could come together. And if they did, what would we do? And what would that mean? And then I thought, I can't get those 30 women. Our schedules are ridiculous. How will I get? We were all over the country. Then I thought, maybe it could be any widowed person. Maybe this space could be for any widowed person. Soaring Spirits was founded around the concept of creating a space for widowed people where they are in a peer group. It's not so much about providing, in fact, we don't provide any professional medical assistance or psychiatric help. Instead, what we do is create a community of peers where you just walk through the widowed experience side by side. It's not even so much about mentorship, though of course that happens. It's more about we're all living this experience, we're in it together. And I remember the first time I met one of my dearest friends now, I said to her, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And she was like, me too. And I was like, okay. So, you know, it wasn't so much about finding the answers as finding someone else who also was living the experience and just sort of looking at each other like, now what? And then, well, maybe we'll try this or maybe we'll try that. It's been an incredible journey. Truly, it's been the privilege of my life to do this work and to walk beside now millions of widowed people who are, I'd like to make it clear, and I hope that the book also makes it clear, that this work that we do is not really about grief. It's about learning to live after you've been changed by grief. And that is one of the hardest things for widowed people to do. And really, in my experience, for any person who's experienced a trauma that changes them, because we don't want to be changed by something terrible that's happened to us. For our widowed experience, coming together and really witnessing for each other as we live means that I get the opportunity to see what people build after. And that is truly inspiring. Again, my privilege to do this incredible work. How long was it before you felt ready to go on this journey of interviewing these other widows? Was it a year, a few months? When were you ready for that? I wasn't ready. That's the truth of it. And I did it before I was ready. The way that I talked to myself about it, I started doing my first interview four months after Phil died. I think that what drove me was this desperation to talk to other widowed people. I wanted to figure out how to do this. I couldn't find anyone who could tell me. I literally just said to the people around me, hey, I'd like to interview widowed people. Anybody know one? Somebody would say, yeah, my neighbor's widowed or, you know, and that's how I ended up traveling and doing all of these crazy things in that first year of widowhood. But the thing that drove me was that desire to have somebody who had lived through it tell me something about it, one. And then two, I had decided that I wouldn't interview anybody who wasn't 
widowed longer than me because I definitely felt completely unprepared to be a support to someone who had been widowed less time than me. And I thought, well, if I could just interview only people who were further along. So fast forward to one of my interviews, it got a little crazy towards the end. People were starting to send me a lot of them and I was basically doing two or three or even four interviews a month. I was trying to juggle them. Plus I was grieving. Plus I had six grieving kids. Everything was a little messy. And I get to the house of this woman and she's a friend of a friend of a friend. When I sit down with her and say, you know, so tell me a little bit about your experience. When were you widowed? Turns out she was widowed less time than me. And I about had a panic attack because I was like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I just thought, okay, well, I guess I just dive into the questions the same way I did with everyone else. But I'll never forget that moment of panic of like, I don't know what to do. You're widowed less time than me. Please don't look at me and think I know what I'm doing because I definitely do not. But you probably did. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of that. You probably, after all those conversations that you had, you probably were able to offer that person support. Well, what I hadn't yet learned was that what the support was, was just being present for each other. I was still so new in my own experience that I hadn't realized yet. By the time I got to the end of those interviews, it was about 13 months. I had set the target of doing them within a year. There was one outstanding one that took just a little longer than that. And when I got to the end of it, I realized that what every single time what was meaningful wasn't even so much the words, it was the understanding. And obviously I could offer her that. Yeah. But it taught me so much about the widowed experience to, I mean, I had all of these different people from all walks of life. I had a few that I knew, but distantly, some we'd met, but very few, mostly was strangers. And what I realized was how quickly strangers became a person who we could finish each other's sentences. And all of that was wrapped up in this shared experience. My family did definitely think I was a little crazy. And when I went to Alaska, that's when they finally put their foot down and were like, okay, somebody needs to go with you. What are you doing? (laughs) But yeah, some really incredible people and just a generosity of sharing that allowed me to envision what could it look like if we just made space for any person who's experienced this. I think you had a calling. There was some higher power drawing you to do this because I really feel like without some of that experience, you may not have been able to write the book. Maybe you could have, but then all these other great things have come out of that, which is really, really spectacular. When did you decide to write Different After You? My intention initially with all those interviews was to collect answers to questions that I was struggling with. I wanted to know how long people wore their wedding ring, whether or not they put more pictures up or took pictures down. Did they sleep on the same side of the bed? I had 50 practical questions I desperately wanted answers to. My intention was to write those in a book because I figured if I was wondering about these things and someone else likely was too. Turns out that when you've only been widowed a year and you have literally no platform for selling a book, nobody's that interested in you writing a book about your experience. It came to me, much like you suggested, that maybe the calling was not so much to write the book or a book, but was to create this community. And so I turned my focus really for the next 12, 13 years to just the organization. And when people would ask me, when are you going to write a book? I'd always say, I don't have time for that. I kept up that I don't have time for that until I met a writer, Christine Carlson, who's the widow. She wrote the foreword for my book. She's the widow of Dr. Richard Carlson of the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, oh. Thinking and Writing, 
when she'd come to Camp Widow to be a keynote and we were all delighted to have her. And after she stepped off the stage, she said to me, when are you going to write your book? And I was thinking to myself, why does everyone keep asking me this? I gave her my stock answer. I don't have time. And she said, well, I've written, I think at that time she'd written four books. And she said, I've never written more than an hour a day. Do you have an hour a day? And I was like, if I get up at five in the morning, and she said, that's my best writing time. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it got me thinking and realizing also that my opportunity to share this most broadly with the world is connected to doing this work and doing it at the same time. I decided that it was time to write the book. But what was so beautiful is that, to your point, I couldn't have written this book 15 years ago. Phil's been dead 17 years There's no world where I could have written this. I didn't know what I knew, what every widowed person I've met has taught me. This book is a very different book than the one I would have written had I completed that project way back in 2006. But instead, it gave me the opportunity to view trauma and grief through a variety of lenses and to welcome other experiences outside of the widowed experience into my writing and into the thinking that went into discussing how trauma changes us and what happens when we fight those changes and how difficult it can be for us to, first of all, reconcile the change and secondly, accept that the changes are permanent And then thirdly, find a way to get to know the person who's born on the other side of that traumatic experience. I have a question for you. I don't want this to sound weird, but do people who are left here, do they feel guilt when they are ready to move on or no longer want to be grieving constantly when they want to make that decision to be happy again? I feel like that's one of the most challenging things for widowed people and anyone really who's grieving is that predominantly what we think of when we think of grieving is sadness, pain, isolation, all of the things that are definitely a part of the grief experience. And yet there's a flip side to every coin. And so there is joy on the other side and there is the opportunity for happiness even within our grief. I think the answer is different for every single person, that there is often a guilt associated with a time when you feel that you're just tired of grieving or when you feel called by life forward in a way that's surprising you or when a new opportunity comes up and it might even be directly related to your grief experience and then you feel Because people will often say to you, oh, well, thank goodness for that. It must be because this person died so that you could have this. I can't count how many times people have said to me, wow, well, clearly this is why Phil died. I just don't ascribe to that type of thinking. I believe that Phil's life ended because it was time for his life to end. And what I did after was my choice of how and what came to me in the aftermath of his death and finding a way to accept and welcome the new version of myself that was born. And that was really hard work and definitely included walks down the guilt road. Sometimes people shame you. All of the things that can be associated with change and with transformation were really hard and also life-changing. And because I found a way to acknowledge and accept this new version of myself, this new version got the opportunity then to do the work that was in front of me. 
I even had a question down because you had mentioned in the book that you may not emerge from the loss, the same person that you were before. In order for you to move on, you have to be able to embrace that change. Is that what you're saying? I like to use the phrase move forward. Anytime you're moving forward, if you don't embrace the fact that you've been changed, I feel like it's if you're swimming upstream. It's not that you can't. It's that it's really hard. A lot of times when someone experiences a traumatic experience, we set our standard for knowing that we healed by saying, if I can go back to how I used to be, then I'll be healed. But we've set now the gold standard to an impossible task. Whatever it is that you have experienced stays with you. It stays with you in your body. It stays with you in your brain. It stays with you in your heart. And you're changed by that experience, especially when it's a bad one. People don't want to be changed. But if you flip it around and say, you graduated from college, everybody thinks it's incredible. Great job. You did all the things. And guess what? You were changed in the experience of going to college and achieving that goal. And we welcome that change. And we understand that we will be different after that. But when it's a negative thing, when it's a hard thing, when someone dies, when we've had an accident, when our health is compromised, when we had a divorce, when we've lost our job, we don't want to be changed by any of those things. But we are in the same way that we were changed by a college experience or by becoming a parent or owning a new home. Any of the things that we view as positive life steps forward, those change us and we welcome those changes. But it's also true of anything that we live through that's traumatic. We cannot think about things the same way as we did before because we know something we didn't know before. You get to know yourself on a whole different level. Absolutely. There was a chapter, and I think it was chapter 17, that I loved. And I'm going to read just the beginning of this chapter because it really resonated with me. It says, Dreaming a new dream after living through a life-altering experience requires the courage to acknowledge the pain and heartbreak of disappointment. But rather than using that pain as a justification for avoiding growth, dreaming again uses the pain that changed us as a catalyst for expansion and transformation. That's beautiful. I'm so glad it resonates for you. It really did. I think sometimes, too, person experiencing the loss or the grief, they may be ready to move on, but maybe the people around them aren't ready to move on. Maybe it's an in-law or maybe it's the kids. How do you coach or counsel people when there are people putting roadblocks up to the healing? I think it's really important to remember that not only do you have to get to know the new person you're becoming, but so does everybody else around you. Being able to first know ourselves is the best way that we can express to other people what's changed for us. I think sometimes it's hard to give words to. People around us may be looking at us. There was a woman who told me that she was involved in the Boy Scout organization, had been for 25 years. Her husband died, and suddenly, as she's putting her life back together, she's thinking, am I making room for scouts or am I not making room for scouts? When she made the choice for herself to explore some other things that she might now be interested in, the people around her were really disappointed and even expressed things like, your husband would be so disappointed in you. This is a part of your identity. How could you let it go? They just shamed her over and over. And I was so proud of her because she said to me, I knew it wasn't right for me anymore. And that's not a gift to the organization. That's just holding on because people think I should. 
these traumatic experiences that we live through, when something in your life makes you ask what matters to me right now, and you are free to answer that question truthfully for this version of yourself, it may take you in a surprising direction. The people around you probably going to be very surprised by that. If we go back to me starting that book the first time when my family was looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm asking for help with the kids and I'm traveling to all of these places and they are looking kind of confused, like they're not sure if this is a good choice for me. I've been widowed less than a year. I knew what I needed to do and I expressed that the best that I could. I just say to people, the first thing to do is know for yourself. The first thing, the only permission you really need to give yourself the freedom to express or explore any new thing that might be a part of your life or catching your interest is your own. Past that, you can, I love the fishbowl chapter in the book, which helps people filter the feedback that comes when we start making changes that are surprising to the people around us. But it helps you nail down like whose voice really matters. And that came from me having to shut down some voices that were questioning choices that I was making and then going overboard and cutting everybody out because I was like, forget all of you. If nobody likes what I'm doing, I'll do it myself. And realizing that's not healthy either. And so finding that healthy balance between the people whose feedback really is meant to encourage and support you as you grow, as you learn who you're going to be next, and also giving you the freedom to say, I hope you'll get to know this new me, but if you don't, that's going to be a loss for you because I'm kind of great. That's really at the end of the book. My hope for every single person is to be able to look at that new person and think, wow, I've lived through some stuff. Look at me still doing it and look at me trying to figure out who I'm going to be next and how everything that I've learned in the past is coming with me just in a different form. I had mentioned to you that this stuff applies to a lot of areas of life. When I introduce this book as a book for people who are grieving, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're grieving the loss of a loved one, like a spouse or a partner. It could be other things in life. If you're listening to Michelle's message here, I'm thinking if you lost a career that you've loved and that was your identity, this is the same process that you would go through in grieving a loss of a person. Now, certainly losing a person in your life is more traumatic, but it's the same thought process of how you may come out of this a little different, but you came out on the other side of things. And that's the message. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was really intentional about including every type of traumatic experience that I could think of in the book, because you're exactly right. We don't use the word grief always for the traumas that we live through in our life. And yet we grieve the person we used to be before the bad thing happened. I had a good friend who survived an attack. The attack was very significant and was part of a string of attacks. I had her very present in my mind as I was writing because we were able to have some discussions about what it was like when what people want her to do is forget it ever happened. That was the way that they wanted her to be feeling like she'd healed was to forget it ever happened. And yet, how do you ever forget that? And what's it like when someone comes up from behind you or when 
the lights go out unexpectedly or any of the things that might happen that would trigger for her those thoughts of what it was like. I had her very present in my mind as I was writing because when we had our first conversation about integration, which is the concept of including all of the experiences in your life in every iteration of yourself that you build, meaning that you'll have access to the tools that helped you survive all of the hard stuff. And that means the next time something hard happens, you haven't tried to bury it and pretend like it didn't happen. Instead, you've owned it and made it a part of who you are. She is a survivor. And that survivorship was hard won. To pretend the attack didn't happen would also mean that she would have to release the survivorship as well. We talked a lot about what it's like to integrate these really hard things that happen to us and why that's important, why we need them. Because if you made your way to the top of your company and you're celebrating your retirement, people think that's a great thing. And yet, if it was some other horrible thing that had happened, nobody celebrates you. They don't celebrate your survivorship. Instead, they say, okay, yeah, that was terrible. Please stop talking about it. And please, if you can, forget about it. Go back to being who you were. It was so damaging for her that it made it so clear that each of the steps in the book, these are designed for people who have experienced something that's changed them. And that thing is a trauma, and that could be any level of trauma, including, of course, the death of someone you love. And each of them have their own nuance, but the process for rebuilding is so similar. And I hope that the book would be something that people can come back to, because the truth is that we're going to live through a lot of things that change us. And knowing, even let's say, when people experience all of their kids leaving the home, and now they're an empty nester. And we think of that as a really positive, lovely time of life. But for some people, it's really hard. They struggle and they have to figure out who am I if I'm not sharing space with my kids. The process, if you picked up the book, would be right there for you. You grieve what you've lost. You look into, start inventorying what you have. And then you start looking to ask yourself the question, what do I want to build? It's the same process. It's just a different trauma. I'm so glad you brought that up because we talk about that a lot on this podcast. I have been so amazed by my guests that have hit midlife, particularly their 50s, and they've done things like written a book. They're doing all these great things. They're coaching. They're doing, and they weren't doing this stuff in their 30s. Yeah. And a lot of it comes out of that, okay, I'm an empty nester now. I need to redefine myself. So this is great. I'm glad you're bringing that up because I think your book could be a resource for people that just need some that process. I love the process too, because if you can get into it, you allow yourself to ask the questions. I make it really clear. Don't make changes just to be changed, but instead ask yourself the question and then don't answer it. Wait for a minute and allow yourself to sit with a question for a little while. Do I still like, if we go back to our woman who was a scout leader, am I still driven by the volunteerism that I do? Is it still where my priority lies? And the answer might be yes. And if it is, great. Then you know that you're going to add that to what you're building next. You want to make time for that. Other people have come back to long lost loves and hobbies and experiences and making time for things that before seemed not as important when they didn't have this reality that they'd been changed. And when they'd been changed, it highlights the brevity of life. It highlights that we actually don't have that much time here. And we want to make the most of it that we can while we have the opportunity to do it. I include myself in that. I'm 50. I just turned 53. I'm always forgetting how old I am. I just turned 53. <laughs> 
I just, I love this time of life because so many people are coming to a new stage where they're asking themselves, okay, this portion of my life is sort of fading out or changing. And there can be a number of reasons for that. And now I'm in this space of asking myself, like you said, what's the process? How do I discover myself? There's a million ways to do it, of course, but what I love about the book is that it lays out a process by which you could use all kinds of means to find yourself. This is just a thought process in stepping through what you can do to really acknowledge and welcome that change. Yeah, I love that. You did meet someone and you you did find love and you remarried, which I think is beautiful. How did you meet Michael? We met on eHarmony. <laughs> When eHarmony was the place to be. And interestingly, I wasn't serious. I was thinking, I know I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. Also, I can't imagine what it would be like to have a partner. So I went on eHarmony and said, please find somebody from all over the world. (laughs) And then he went on eHarmony, having been on eHarmony for many months in Australia and said, okay, fine, I guess I'll try all over the world. And then somehow we found each other. And in that space over a two-year long distance relationship, he decided that he wanted to move to the U.S. and start a life here. We've been happily married for 13 years. And I have to say that the process of being changed has been highlighted by my relationship with him. And I talk about that a bit in the book in so much as the challenge, I think sometimes, especially if you're grieving a death of a partner, is that you can be a better partner after There were things that I realized in my relationship with Phil, which really were mostly about staying so focused on my goals that I wasn't spending enough time being present. And that is one of my few regrets. Going into my relationship with Michael, I really try to be as present and aware of the fact that we're making memories that are going to last forever and that they're going to be things that we absolutely just treasure. I try to be really present for those in a way that I just, I didn't know yet. I hadn't been changed by trauma. Not all of the changes that we experience from trauma are negative. Many of them actually influence our thinking and change the way we live in the world in a way that serves not only us, but the people around us. That's wonderful. It's okay to say, hey, I would like to do things differently this time around. And not that things were bad before, but it's like, oh, you know what? It's the self-awareness stuff that we start to pull into our later years, I think. (laughs) I think it's also allowing yourself to be changed by trauma. That's the biggest message of the book is allowing that change because we fight against it, as I said, swimming upstream, in part because we're told by the world around us that we're not supposed to be changed by bad things. Instead, if we can allow ourselves the freedom to be changed, then we get to look at all the nuances of what we're learning. And I'm not suggesting that it's all fun. It isn't. But there are some nuggets of truth in there that will change the way you walk in the world, but only if you allow yourself that opportunity. And if you set yourself up with the ideal of going back to who you were before, then you miss out on everything that you might have learned and might change the way you walk in the world because you're trying so hard to get back to the person that didn't know all the things that you know now. I have to ask you, are you working on any other projects? It's a funny thing. Yeah, I am working on a project. I have not yet really put any form to it. I had set out to write a book about love after 
having had something that has totally changed everything. And then I realized that we got to start with self-love. Different After You was actually not intended to be my first book. It was intended to be a book down the road, and I reversed the order. My next project is going to be about what it's like when your heart's been crushed and you thought you had what was going to last forever, and then turns out that forever was shorter time than you thought. That's going to be next. That's what I'm working on now. There could be a spin in there about divorce, too, because... For sure. I had a guest on who does a lot of post-divorce coaching, and we talked about that, the self-love that has to come first before you can move on. That's why the order of the book turned out as it did. And interestingly, (laughs) part of my story is that I have been both divorced and widowed. It was not until I was widowed that I was actually truly grateful for having the experience of being divorced because I knew that I could do it. I knew I could raise kids on my own. I knew I was capable. I didn't want to, but I knew I was capable. It's another opportunity when you look at the things that have been hard and have changed you with the lens to take forward from that, the things that will serve you later. I never would have imagined that from my divorce would come a level of confidence that would serve me later, but it truly did. For sure, the book will be addressing whatever it is that separated you from the love that you had, because often we think that another love is going to be the thing that solves it all. The truth is that the love of self is the first piece. And without that, you aren't able to go on to that next great love. Absolutely. And I'm sitting here nodding. She's watching me. I'm nodding my head. I like your message. I want to know how people can find Soaring Spirits and Camp Widow. Are they all on the same website or are they separate? They are separate, but everything starts on the Soaring Spirits website. You'll find all the programs that Soaring Spirits offers there, including Camp Widow. Camp Widow has gotten a lot of interesting attention. In fact, we'll be premiering a documentary that will stream on PBS for the Camp Widow program in November. We don't have a date yet. As soon as I have a date, I'll be shouting it from the rooftops. Everything about Camp Widow can be found from the Soaring Spirits website as well. So Soaring Spirits is the place to start. I also love to point out that we have a program called the Newly Widowed Packet Program. For any of you who are listening who know somebody who's widowed that might really benefit from having a community, and that's anybody who's widowed in my opinion, you can request that packet for yourself and then deliver it to your friend or coworker or family member or whomever it is that could benefit from having the information. It's basically an orientation to all of our programs. It's available for free. Someone who's widowed can request it for themselves. Someone who's not widowed, We ask that you request it for yourself, saying that you're a friend of, because we don't send them out unsolicited so as not to surprise anyone with mail that they didn't request. Got it. That's good. Where can people find Different After You, your book? My website, michelleneffhernandez.com. I spell my name with one L, so it's M-I-C-H-E-L-E, neffhernandez.com. And it's right there on the front page. You can also find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the indie booksellers. It should be easy to find. Okay. I put everything in the show notes. Excellent. They'll have all that there. Michelle, thank you for being a guest on the show today. I'm so pleased that we finally got to make this happen. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you.
follow Asking for a Friend on social media outlets and provide a review and share this show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and sharing help us grow. 